Cody is part of a magnificent strength and conditioning staff at the University of Iowa that tries to remain at the forefront when it comes to integrating sports science, sports medicine, and sports performance. He specifically coordinates the strength and conditioning programs for rowing, softball, men's and women's cross country, track and field, and middle distance. In this podcast, we're covering specifically his work with the middle distance runners, and more importantly, how he is integrating iso-inertial training, utilizing the eccentric K-Box. He's going to be talking about how he applies iso-inertial training in NCAA setting, how he has utilized it with his softball players during return to performance, and where he sees iso-inertial training making its biggest impact at the University of Iowa in the next couple of months. Hope you guys enjoy this one. Let's get started. Welcome to episode 87 of the Historic Performance Podcast featuring Cody Roberts, Assistant Strength and Conditioning Coach at the University of Iowa. I really want to thank everyone that has been leaving a review or rating on iTunes. If you listen to this podcast on iTunes and you enjoy it, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left either a review or rating. It only takes a couple of seconds and it helps other sport performance coaches and sports scientists find the podcast on iTunes. So thank you in advance. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Story Performance Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Cody Roberts. Cody, how are you doing? Great. It's a pleasure having you on, Cody. Looking forward to this conversation. I think you're the first person to come on that primarily works with uh, middle distance runners in track and field. So I think we have uh, interesting topics that we're going to be covering. So I'm looking forward to it. Likewise, James. Yeah, appreciate the opportunity. Cody, to start us off, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your current role? Yeah, for sure. Uh, definitely want to keep it brief and, and kind of get in the meat potatoes what we want to talk about today, but incredibly grateful for the people and the opportunities brought me to, to where I am today. Uh, this can be a very demanding, rewarding profession, but just thankful for my family, friends, colleagues, and their unconditional s- support. Like most of us, our, our experience began as, a, as an athlete. I was a discus and hammer thrower at the University of Kansas. That's kind of where I got my first exposure to the field uh, as an athlete and then as an intern. Moved on to Illinois State University, and that kind of still holds true as one of the most influential years of my life in, in 2008. Just the relationships I made there during my time uh, and, and ultimately of what what brought me here to Iowa. Went back to University of Kansas and, and finished my grad work. And then the last six years, 2010 to 2016, I was the director at Bradley University working with all the all the sports there. Uh, my time and experiences there are, are a podcast in and of itself, but joined the staff here in July of, of 2016 with Coach Maxwell and 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 it's just a it's a very collaborative environment, you know, very performance focused both within our staff and uh, what we're doing from an educational standpoint as well as really providing a a student athlete centered environment. He's assembled a group of people that that address physical, the mental, uh, as well as the social aspects of development. And and I'm just incredibly proud to be a part of it. Regarding the NCAA NCAA level, uh, I really truly feel that we're we're definitely at the forefront of what's going on from a technology standpoint, assessments, uh, interventions, training, and and like I said. From, from an educational standpoint, what we're doing with, with our athletic trainers, 
our sport coaches. Uh, you know, it's truly a, uh, a collaborative environment. So excited about my growth here the last eight months. My direct oversight is with softball rowing. Uh, our mid-distance program is, is very successful. We had a couple All-Americans on the mid-distance side in indoor season looking to, to continue that success in our, in our outdoor season. Cody, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know a ton about middle distance running. My first question in terms of that is when you're doing a needs analysis from looking at kind of the physical needs of a middle distance runner, what are some of the things that you look at as a staff at University of Iowa? Yeah, the middle distance event, very similar to kind of a wrestler, MMA fighter, some soccer teams and some rugby programs probably dip into this type of hybrid athlete. You think about performance and how it is so multifaceted in the sense that, you know, you have to be strong from an alactic standpoint, a glycolytic standpoint, an aerobic side, things like respiration and relative strength and just different, you know, fascial alignments and, and neural components and, and everything that's coming into play with regards to these athletes stepping on the track and, and running for, if you consider like an 800 meters, you know, kind of as the staple mid-distance, uh, a two minutes, you know, the, the further away from two minutes you can be, you know, as far as closer to 140, 145 you can be, the, the more successful we're obviously looking to to be. But performance can't be attributed to any one of these things. It's a combination of everything. So they compete in this this middle ground of aerobic and, and anaerobic outputs, attaining the highest, ultimately the highest average velocities and, and force outputs when they're, when they're going through their race. And, and the one that not necessarily the fastest, but the one that's able to to maintain solid velocity and, and a solid force output for that extended period. So you're getting into a, a means that you're going to tolerate pain and, and the physiological responses that are that are going on with it. It's it's not just going to be the the fastest athlete that's going to be the most successful. Things like VO2 max are are going to be influential. Uh, not I wouldn't say huge, but but there's a correlation to to VO2 max and 800 meters. And the further the further that distance goes, the the more that that VO2 max is going to play. Running economy off kind of where you're going to get that average velocity, where your ability to perform at a velocity at a at a low cost. So en- enabling that runner to maintain the, the higher velocity during the race is ultimately going to allow them to be the most successful. Again, in in the middle of of an endurance athlete and a sprint athlete, you look at an endurance athlete is able to to really rely on that oxidative system. And that's a sustainable energy source in producing ATP. And so the the body is going to kind of govern what is happening during the race in, in an endurance-focused event because the, the aerobic system is going to allow only so much. But in order to perform well within this mid-distance realm, you have to really tap into some anaerobic sources and anaerobic zones to where you're really relying on the strength and the speed of the tissues themselves. And so it can be a very, you know, like I said, it can be a very painful environment and you're trying to maintain these high power outputs for the longer, the better type of aspect. And, and you're, you're working with, you know, you think about a hundred meter race and, and you think, talk about efficiency and things that go into speed development. And you're essentially looking to really, you know, tap into that speed endurance realm and, and really train the abilities to to fight you know the buildup of hydrogen ions and and the things that we understand from a physiological standpoint that are going on when you're you're pushing your body to that limit so the faster you go the sooner it's over but uh the times that we're seeing 
and the performances that we're seeing, the world-class level at, at the collegiate level within the 800 meters, the faster and more elastic athlete is, is the one that's prevailing. With that in mind, that's how we need to really establish from our standpoint within strength conditioning what we are addressing and how we are improving these athletes because the track coach themselves is going to obviously focusing on maybe the aerobic abilities, obviously the technique is technique side, but I think what we can do in our realm can really truly influence these anaerobic uh, abilities and, and really uh, this elastic quality that's necessary to be successful. Cody, as you mentioned at the University of Iowa, you're really at, at the forefront in terms of NCAA when it comes to technology, assessments, integration. When it comes to creating an athletic profile for the middle distance athlete, now that we have a better sense of uh, physiologically what is going on, what are some of the testing protocols that you do in order to get that complete athletic profile that will then help you if you're programming down the line? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing that I've been able to utilize here has been our, our TMG units, our, our tensiomyography unit to where we're able to to identify from a uh, specific muscle standpoint, what is the ability for that muscle to contract? Is it tense enough? And where does that fall basically on the spectrum of, of readiness to perform? You know, regarding the, the TMG unit and the testing that we'll do, we look at, at the displacement of the muscle when the contraction is sent to that muscle. We're looking at displacement and contraction speed. And in the combination of those two, you might have you know, a large displacement and a, a slow contraction. And, and that just kind of looks at, hey, we might have a weak muscle or, or maybe something that is as acutely fatigued. You know, we might have something that, you know, has a normal displacement, but then it has, again, a slow contraction period. And that might say, hey, we need to look at activating that muscle before we train it. Some of the things that we've got into from a deeper dive with what the TMGs allowed us to do is, is really look at what's going on from a muscular function standpoint. And then we're able to go through the training process and really provide ourselves with confidence to, are we doing the right thing? You know, and, and this is something that we'll do weekly with our, with our student athletes. And, and we don't do it with everybody, but, you know, we identify the, the ones that, you know, that are going to give us kind of the boat, the best feedback that, that are really, you know, adapting and handling the training the best from a standpoint of, of their lifestyles and that sort of thing. You know, we're really able to, to get some really good quality feedback not only from a readiness standpoint, but also from a progress standpoint. The the other aspects, you know, from a from a physiological side, it's a it's that aerobic and anaerobic again, anaerobic power reserve concept that that's come about and continues to be referenced. But seeing these aerobic monsters that have very little anaerobic power outputs, you know, maybe they've trained on that cross country side coming out of high school and all they've done is miles and miles and they've never really had that true anaerobic power development and and really never trained the tissues to be strong and powerful um, as they should be in that that two minute window essentially that we're working in but there's athletes that that can also at the other side you know really have a strong anaerobic power aspect to their abilities to where they can continue to produce atp and force at high rates, despite this, you know, really acidic environment. So it's ultimately identifying where their strength is and where we need to focus our attention. Because if they are already an aerobic monster, then well, that's established. Let's look to build that that anaerobic power and those, you know, those strength qualities that are going to really uh, enable them to take their performance to the next le next level, and vice versa. You know, maybe they're already 
kind of a, a very explosive and elastic athlete, and their, their anaerobic power is there, but their ability to function aerobically is poor. So I think improving, improving uh, one or the other can be, can be beneficial to, to their training. And it's just a matter of identifying which area you need to focus on. You know? and, and that's where the weight room and, and our role as strength coaches can really greatly influence, like I was saying, about that, that aerobic ability from a strength and power and, and tissue ability standpoint. Uh, so essentially uh, developing that engine as opposed to to the aerobic side, which is which is more your your gas tank. Kind of what this is what this is leading to, and I think what kind of stemmed our conversation, James, was was really talking about flywheel training and, and iso inertial training, and and you know the the popularity that has grown with with the K-Bot and what that allows you to do from a training standpoint, but also from a testing standpoint, has been been very exciting. You take the the K meter itself. Uh, and and kind of go through the you know eccentric power test essentially been described as basically it's a four rep max output test you know you'll have a couple reps to build up some momentum on that on the flywheel and then you go four reps all out they they recommend to take three minutes in between sets of this and to do really three to four three to four sets because when they were doing these these assessments only fifteen percent of the participants did best on their very first trial. And it wasn't until, you know, about half of them did their best on their third test. So just from a testing protocol standpoint, I think that's important to note that when you're, when you're utilizing that K-Box and going through that power test, that it, you can't just be a one and done, that those, those initial maybe one or two tests potentiate the tests, um, the test afterwards. And, and I've never seen so much information from, from one set utilize the K-meter with, uh, with the flywheel because you're able to get power and force numbers, you know, 12 basically outputs. You're getting average power, concentric peak power, eccentric peak powers, uh, you know, the, the peak overload between the two, the relative peak powers to body weight that are obviously vitally important to a mid-distance athlete or any track athlete that's obviously having to move their own body around the track, getting average forces, range of motion, speeds, you know, energy, time, like all those things that are just great from a, from a feedback standpoint in developing force and developing power. And, and really ultimately what it turns into is developing confidence for, for the student athlete that we're working for um, and showing that what we are doing in the weight room is continuing to prove that anaerobic power ability. Yeah, Cody, as you mentioned, one, one of the main reasons that I reached out was specifically to talk about flywheel training, how you integrate it with your middle distance runners at the NCAA level. How do you go about integrating that information to create the program? And where does the K-Box fit uh, within this, especially in an NCAA team setting. Yeah, definitely. Regarding the integrated approach, obviously it starts with the track first. What is happening on the track with with the mid distance and um, you know kind of event specific coach is going to really dictate what I do and when I do it. Very much high low approach focus, where I'm going to combine the neural components of what's going on from a high high stress or high stimulus standpoint and then be collaborative and when he they do like a long run or a, like a general low intensive day then I'm going to do the same type of work and it's just a matter of you know taking advantage of the opportunities that I get to expose them to that you know higher stimulus regarding the K-box usage I think it's it's your imagination that's your limit right now with what the the equipment's you know capable of and implementation even is foundational at this point. You know, I'm at a you know an advantage because I see group is kind of divided up into to three three groups of about ten athletes. You know, I have a female group that comes in at 
three, and then I have a, a longer sprint group, kind of a short mid-distance group that comes in at four, and then kind of your extended extended mid-distance uh, group that comes in at five. So I have the opportunity to kind of train these groups and really utilize uh, our K-Box that we have to to its full potential with the, with a smaller group. So guarding a little bit of the, the iso-inertial training and, and what's going on, it's not an end-all, be-all. You know, it is, it, there is tons of research that's coming out that's showing the benefits of it. And I, and I think it's, it's my current opinion that it's a necessary piece to a complete training program. We as a program kind of look at we are doing I think it's something that we want to really maximize its its usage this isn't a k-box plug but I also don't want to sit here and knock them because I think they've obviously been they're the pioneers for this for this piece and and what it's what it's done already in the last maybe 10 years that since it's kind of the the concept has been developed has been incredible so I don't know that it's necessarily completely ready for the the NCAA team space, but uh, you know we've never been never been closer. Regarding you know the ability to develop strength and to develop that that relative strength within within a distance runner, I think we we need to kind of gear our training a little bit more on the tissue side regarding you know tendons, uh, fascia, and and what's going on from a from a stretch shortening cycle standpoint and how to integrate and improve or impact you know, their performance. That's where this eccentric training and, and the research that's coming out right now is, is really continued to lean towards the values of eccentric training. What we've seen kind of with the research from, from the Nordic you know, hamstring in regards to its, its ability to prevent injury. You know, and, and you look at the tissue that is longer and stronger, the, that's the tissues that are tend to be more durable, tend to be able to be more robust and, and reduce likelihood of injury. So I think that's some, some value that, that leans us towards that eccentric standpoint. You, you see the force velocity curve even today, you know, on Twitter and things like that, it continues to be out there where it's saying, hey, here's the spectrum of exercises that, that fall on the force velocity curve where you have everything from a jump shrug to a, maybe a, a just a high pull clean or something like that. And obviously higher velocities or, or higher forces and, and anywhere in between. But I feel like we're really spending too much time looking at the concentric side of the, the force velocity curve and, and we're neglecting the forces that the tissue is exposed to at the eccentric and the isometric action. With this eccentric focused training or eccentric uh, side to the tissue, there's adaptations that are that are preferable to type 2 fibers that are going to help that anaerobic development or that, that strength power development that we're talking about. From the you know, injury prevention side, you're, you're talking about longitudinal hypertrophy, um, where you're, you're lengthening that muscle under tension and you're increasing the ability for it to shorten at higher velocities. And really, uh, you know, the, the word robust continues to come about within this research. And, and when I first heard it, I, I didn't really completely understand it just because it, it wasn't really part of my, you know, vocabulary. But look up the word robust and, and you're, it's healthy, powerful, strong, tough, forceful, all things that, that we as practitioners are looking to develop within our, within our student athletes and especially from an injury prevention side, volumes and the the velocities and, and, and the things that these, these student athletes are being exposed to, it, it only makes sense to, to include eccentric training within your programming. You know, we're talking about increases in, in tendon cross-sectional area, the stiffness 
aspect that can really take a maybe overtrained on the distance side and the aerobic side athlete and really help them develop them develop those elastic qualities that are going to take them from a you know a subpar 155 to somebody that's going to be a game changer running a, a sub 150 time all of the physiological adaptations that are happening through the eccentric training whether it, you know whether it be the the increases in in the cross-sectional area of the tendons or exposing the muscles and the tendons to greater lengths and greater tensions than you ever would see with a concentric exercise. It, it just makes perfect sense to continue to lean or continue to find ways to dose this type of training into your program. Uh, and that's kind of what this last six months has really kind of started started rolling here within our track track and field program especially and it you know obviously starts to bleed into to all of our programs because of the the collaborative nature of our of our staff but doing this has shown so much benefit from maybe protect protection from dom from that delayed onset muscle soreness that you get from exposing tissues to to different training means and i think this again makes the tissues more durable to handle higher workloads, higher intensities, and, and really just allows for that adaptation to occur with our with our training. And so all of this eccentric training is is still going to affect that force velocity curve on the concentric side, and it's going to continue to move it up and to the right. And, and I think that's why you see so many benefits from things like triphasic training with Cal Dietz and, and what he's done there and, and the stimulus that you're achieving through something like a French contrast method or you, you hear about uh, Coach Schneider's fascial reprogramming. I think all of that stuff has its place and, and kind of continues to lean towards that isometric and, and eccentric side of training. Kind of where I'm leading with all this with regards to the eccentric background is the flywheel allows just that. And the flywheel allows that in a more continuous way than, than the barbell, dumbbells, free weights, you know, even like weight stack machines uh, would allow. There, there seems to be, with, with the flywheel training, there seems to be a higher degree of transfer with regards to, to just really sport-specific abilities like changing direction, being able to handle, you know, that eccentric activity because of the stimulus that they're, that they're able to, uh, you know, achieve with the use of the flywheel. With eccentric training, I'm talking about not just tempoed things, not like not your traditional submax, maybe eccentrics where we're just doing an EQI type action or a, a tempoed exercise, because it's not a it's not a true eccentric unless there is no concentric possible. And and understanding that that eccentric force is greater than what any concentric force could produce. The meta-analysis that's kind of been, you know, pushed as of late, the Journal of Science and Medicine and Sport kind of shows that eccentric overload training versus traditional strength training has shown greater improvements, greater functional and structural adaptations in strength, power, hypertrophy, jump height, running speed. And those are all things that, that we are looking to obviously develop. And, and within any uh, strength coach or sport performance practitioner, that's essentially what they're trying to do is, is to develop those abilities to create the foundation for an athlete to to be more successful. There's the performance aspect, there's the injury prevention aspect. You're developing 
the strength and the speed and that may be the mass depending on depending on what type of uh, athlete you're working with the mid-distance athlete you're not necessarily looking to add bulk to them but from a tenderness standpoint, you're obviously looking to increase the, the cross-sectional area there. But with this training, what makes it so exciting too is that it's you're seeing these improvements, both a greater strength and power and, and jump height and running speed, but also you're achieving those those improvements at a, at a faster rate in, in our realm is, is absolutely vital. Get small windows of time. And when I'm talking small windows, I'm talking maybe maybe a four-week or six-week block. And, and what we're able to accomplish in that four weeks is really going to make or break how much that student-athlete develops. And we don't want to spend four to six weeks learning how to train or learning how to handle a barbell or learning how to do those exercises that are, yes, going to produce high forces and high velocities. But what if we can do those concurrently at the same time that we're also really exposing those tissues to this stimulus and to this stress? And, and really exposing these tissues to max forces at high speeds. And, and it's that type of stress that's really, I think, what's, what's allowing this, this performance improvement and allowing, allowing this development to occur. Because with, with isoinertial, you, you're basically, whatever you put into that flywheel as far as the, the concentric force, you are going to get back exactly what you put into it. There, there's an unrestrained resistance throughout that concentric phase. And that allows for that eccentric force to possibly be even greater. And, and really, it, it's a true accommodating resistance to the fact that it's accommodating the force velocity curve, both eccentrically and concentrically. Whereas the barbell, that only provides that, that max activation at the sticking point of the concentric action. So within the, the resistance and the experience that's offered by flywheel training, you're able to produce max power outputs from day one, essentially, and you're just able to continue to build on that. There's so much potential with, with this type of training, whether it be kind of that post-activation potentiation model, where it is essentially bringing the weight room to the field, possibly, in the sense of we don't have to rely on barbells and squat racks and a room full of dumbbells anymore. We might be bringing that flywheel to the field, to the court, to the track to where this athlete is able to not have to, to segment their training so much to where it's, hey, you're on the track from two to three, and then you're going to come down to the weight room and do your lift from three to four, and you know hopefully the coaches are talking, and, and I think it's, it's going to change the way that we train athletes here in the next decade I, I, I kind of uh, is what I kind of foresee, I guess. So you, you've been doing a lot of experimentation during the last six to, to eight months at the University of Iowa, specifically with, with, the, with the flywheel. And uh, seeing how to integrate it within the programming itself, uh, you mentioned the possibilities of it. For example, like uh, bringing it out to the track for uh, PAP, and you get these small windows of typically four to six weeks where you're trying to create adaptations rather than just teaching proper movement mechanics with with, with the barbell itself. What would be perhaps some specific examples of? where you've integrated the flywheel into perhaps a gym-based program or perhaps uh, on the track with some of your athletes? From a specific gym-based, because we, we haven't even got into the, the possibilities of taking the flywheel to, you know, on a kind of on-site basis. From a practical standpoint of, of how we're utilizing it here, I think the biggest way and the, and the truest way that we've utilized it to where we know it's having effect 
is is basically just with a hinge pattern, incorporating it into the program. And proof is in, in the pudding as far as what is that TMG showing us from a tissue function standpoint. And we've shown that these athletes are more stiff within their contractions to where that displacement of tissue is, is kind of in an optimal range. And we're seeing that the contraction velocities are increasing. And, and that's literally simply from including three sets of 10 of K-box hinges and doing that compared to, to not doing it in the fall and, and seeing this, this very quick adaptation and kids that through the, the indoor season, we were maybe afraid of exposing them to this initially. But then as soon as the indoor season finished and I had that you know small window of, of transitioning from, from our indoor championship season to, to our outdoor season, you know, I wanted to make sure that we really built that robust tissue or exposed that tissue to some stimulus that was going to help extend their performance into April and May. And so, I mean, that's essentially what we're seeing now. The student athletes have felt it. They, when they see it on the program, they like, oh gosh, we got to do, got to do the K box, you know, RDLs. Like those, those things are killer. Like, yeah, but, but look what it's allowing you to do. You're, you're able to train, and you're healthy, and you're tissues are showing that and and that's you know that's the the thing that excites me the most about it i know beyond the performance aspect you've also been using it with some of your other athletes outside of the middle distance runners i know when we chatted you you mentioned using it with softball players in terms of return to performance so where do you think the k-box fits within that return to performance model that you have at the university of iowa and you know why have you decided to to utilize the the k box in those instances and and how we as strength coaches get the get the kind of green light to attack things from a return to performance standpoint it it provides a concurrent development of movement muscle tendons and really just overall structure of the joint and the tissue because a lot of these return to plays are are joint based where they've had maybe a longer layoff maybe a more extended rehab and when you're able to, to implement this flywheel, you're exposing them to a high stimulus, but this, this stimulus can also be extremely restorative and, and therapeutic because you're overloading that muscle and tendon you know, in a safe manner to the standpoint that I'm not going to aggressively attack them with, with eccentric overloading where I'm doing an impulse overload or some type of overloaded concentric action, I, you know, I thought would, you know, that would be negligent on my part, but it, it allows that governor to where, but whatever they're able to produce that time and that day, that's what they're going to get back on the eccentric side to where if I focus on barbell weight and I say, Hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to squat 95 pounds. And then the next we're going to squat 115. They may or may not be ready. So what I think it helps really allow a, a governor for for that athlete to train at a level that they're ready for. And it, it really allows us to to reintegrate training and reintegrate stress and stimulus at a better progressive level. I think sometimes we just progress based off of, hey, let's go light to heavy. But I think let's really make sure that we are preparing that tissue from an eccentric standpoint because that exposure and that stress is going to have crossover to the concentric side and crossover to the the performance enhancement side, and and I think integrating the flywheel training with 
our free weight training and, and our movements and, and, you know, different band work or, or dumbbell work. And it's never, we can't be so married to these exercises. We have to be more so focused on what essentially we're trying to do to the tissues themselves. Cody, I, I think you've mentioned this previously uh, earlier on this podcast, and it's really that with flywheel training, the possibilities are endless. Over the past six to eight months, you, you've been trying things out, seeing where to input it within that NCAA structure. Now that you have a bit more experience with it, where do you see it going in the next six to eight months? You know, where, where do you want to take it? Uh, what points do you want to implement it? What are some of the ideas that you have? Yeah, I think uh, from our staff standpoint, it's it's really just a matter of finding ways to get as many in here as possible, honestly, so that we can train train a full team and it's not just a one a one piece of equipment that you're trying to get everybody on kind of am coming into this realm probably at a bad not necessarily a bad point but not a, a non-optimal uh, side where i'm in the middle of indoor and outdoor season and and i really can't be as aggressive as i would maybe want to be but i think it's a good time for for me to kind of learn and develop these uh training methods from an, an overload standpoint because there are some some pretty aggressive techniques um, that you can that you can utilize to where you really tap into higher higher eccentrics with regards to maybe a delayed eccentric action where you wait you kind of hit that flywheel on a concentric standpoint and then you kind of move to a position and really aggressively hit it um, and that's going to produce a greater eccentric force than what you produced concentrically there's overloaded concentric actions to where you can perform an exercise with maybe, you know, accessory muscles or, or do a more advantageous type movement, uh, like a deadlift, where you're using your back a little bit more, maybe your quads a little bit more, and, and you're putting a little bit more concentric force. And then you're going into an eccentric action and maybe a more disadvantageous movement like an, like an RDL, to where you're more isolating that, that posterior chain and, and you're taking any type of anterior work out of it you know same thing maybe said for a the deadlift can can lead into any exercise to where if you stand up both with arms and uh back and then you go into a kind of a row or you know even the a bicep curl maybe for a for some type of you know baseball pitcher just to expose the tissues to to those high stress or, or you know javelin throw or things like that so that that overloaded concentric action can be done by yourself can be done with a spotter where you know a coach or a, a teammate stands there and assists with an additional pull on top of that. And, and this is, uh, you know, you can do kind of a 2-1 type method. You can go a bilateral squat into a unilateral squat. You can go double leg RDL into a single leg RDL. Uh, same thing with with push-ups or rows. Uh, you know, just today, coworker and I were going through some push-ups where we would push up with one leg and both arms and produce a high force. And then you would absorb that eccentrically just on the, uh, just on the arms and just on the chest and just to... A, Again, find ways to be more aggressive to these tissues, you know, I think allows that, that robust adaptation to occur. Cody, now I'm going to move on to a section which is uh, a bit more about yourself. And I actually created this section because I really got tired of asking the question, uh, like recommendations for up-and-coming strength and conditioning coaches. So I really think some of these questions really hint at that especially the the last one but to start us off um what is your favorite strength and conditioning book i would say the the foundational book for me that i you know when i picked it up and i couldn't stop reading it was uh 
Alvermeil sports and fitness training system for enhancing performance. Why why was it so uh, foundational for you? What 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 did you particularly like about it? You know, I think I had seen so much from the the Charlie Francis side and and just kind of what he had done from a from a sprinter track standpoint, kind of his high low approach and and everything that was encompassing within that. And you know, it's Alvermeil, Eric Helland and and Mike Gatone that were the authors, but what those guys did was basically apply, you know, the Charlie Francis principles to the team setting. Basically, establish this this pyramid of development to where you need to establish that that foundational base of you know these relative strength qualities and this conditioning base, and, and really your your power and your speed and these more aggressive and intensive um, training means and methods come after the fact. And, and I think it it at the time was. You know, anytime you read a resource or anytime you're exposed to a resource, it, it, it's not necessarily the resource, but your readiness to receive that that information, I think, that makes it the most beneficial. So it, it came to me uh, kind of at a period where uh, when I was working at Bradley and I was trying to systemize things and, and make things consistent across the board. Um, just to make you know my my life and my staff's life easier for our student athlete development to just uh, streamline things a little bit more and, and it just really kind of came at the right time to to help my uh, you know my coaching ability. I really like what you said there in terms of the resource. It's not necessarily the information within the resource, but how you're ready to receive it. I think that was well put. The second question I have, favorite quote. Favorite quote, Steve Marabelli. Be your best, do your best, live your best, make every day count. Your favorite book, and this is not strength and conditioning related. It could be any genre, nonfiction, fiction. One that always, again, kind of, uh, uh, you know, I judge a book based on my ability to, or my, uh, you know, my craving to continue to read it. Uh, Lead for God's Sake by Todd Gwanger. Things that really stuck out there is just, you know, living life with a purpose and you know the the two things that most impact our lives are are the people we spend our time with and, and the things that we read. Uh, a huge book that that really kind of, you know, helped me from a character standpoint. This is a fun one. Your favorite movie? Got to go with Shooter, uh, Mark Wahlberg. It's it's pretty much got everything that you need in a movie, so uh I always go with Shooter. And then to end on a more serious note, Best piece of advice ever given to you by a coach or mentor, and why was it so impactful? Yeah, I would say a combination of, of mentors and coaches that I've worked with, obviously, but you have to put yourself and your family first because no one else will. And and it's really important within this profession to to set your boundaries, and you need to make time for the things that, that are important to you. And it's it's kind of the adage of, uh, you know, if it matters, you'll find a way. And if it doesn't, you'll find an excuse. So I think it's it's always stuck with me uh, when when a mentor of mine uh, told me that, that I need to, you know, make sure I set my boundaries. Cody, if uh, anybody wants to reach out to you about anything that you mentioned in this podcast regarding uh, flywheel training or how you integrate it at the NCAA level, What's the best way they can do so? Uh, I try to be as active as I can on Twitter. My handle is at Cody, and then it's two underscores Roberts. If you'd like to email me directly, my email is CodyJRoberts45 at gmail.com. Awesome. I'm going to be putting that in the show notes, which are on my website when I uh, release this podcast. So that way it's easily accessible to, to listeners. 
Awesome. Yeah. Cody, I, I want to thank you for taking the time on a Thursday evening to come on here and uh, talk about what you're doing at the University of Iowa, um, how you're integrating the flywheel, the specific methods that you're using, um, and how you're utilizing in the K-Box at the NCAA team, team setting. So greatly appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, James. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Historic Performance Podcast. If you listened to this episode on iTunes and you enjoyed it, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review or rating. It helps others discover the show. Thank you in advance, and I'll see you guys next week.